Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 224, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This week, are emergency certified teachers a real solution for teacher shortages? We'll discuss. Stay with us. Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each episode, we cover some of the hottest topics in news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This episode, our guest, who is one of the first nationally board certified teachers in America, gives us some suggestions on how to start that first day of school off on the right foot. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by friend, Director of Curriculum Instruction and Assessment, as well as the host of the Class Dismissed podcast, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing? I am pumped up for this holiday weekend that's coming up. Yes. Um, you know, many people don't realize this, but the month of June, is uh, it went by so fast. We had to quickly wrap our heads around providing summer school and credit recovery for students at the same time, preparing for a new school year because our teachers return in three short weeks. Right. I know. So you're at a district that's doing the, the modified round, calendar. The modified calendar. And um, of course, our kids have been going to one of those. I like it. I know it's got a tough turnaround, though, when you're go- switching from one to the other. It's like everything gets compressed real fast. Real fast. It'll be better next summer. But this go around, yeah, we've got to wrap it up. All right. So today we're going to be talking about a topic that uh, I think is something you've probably been dealing with. And that is emergency certified teachers and whether or not it's a reasonable, viable, whatever word you want to put on it, fix for just the nationwide teacher shortage? I mean, or is this just something that you a necessary evil, I guess? And the reason I'm saying this is because I was reading an, an article on Ed Week, and it was talking about there's a notice at the Oklahoma State Department of Education website, and it has a warning for school districts looking for guidance on filling teaching jobs. And it says, quote, emergency certification should only be requested when the district has exhausted every option to find an appropriately certified person for the open position. And now I'll give you the floor. And I agree with that. But let me let me give you some background. Um, there's multiple ways to look at um, the situation of giving an emergency license. We have had teacher shortages in our country for years, but it's just really hitting every single state at this point. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying that to say 22 years ago, when I was starting my teaching career, I received a provisional emergency license and I went what's called the alternate route to teaching. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a degree in biology. I had lots of math courses on my transcript, but I had not received the pedagogy or the proper training in the art of teaching. I was given a provisional license, which also required me to take certain graduate courses to help me learn those things that I did not know. And what I chose to do was to go on and earn a master's degree in education so that I could be fully trained and properly licensed. With that being said, I'm sure that has, is going to shock you that and a lot true. of our listeners that I did not go the traditional well, route to become a teacher. I'm really glad you said that because that was going to kind of be my, I mean argument. For so I'm a living term. testimony right, exactly. that 
I wanted to become a teacher. I had a degree in biology. I chose not to go to medical school. I went the alternate route. I got a license and I got a teaching job, but I chose to get the additional degree so that I could be properly licensed, but not only that, properly skilled to teach my students. And even with that being said, I took it a step further and pursued a third uh, degree in education. And of course, right now I'm all but dissertation. Um, so that will be a fourth degree when I can complete that, that part of the process. I said all that to say, they are always talking about teaching. Um, you must have an innate ability. And I do believe that some of us are born with that innate ability to just be a rock star in the classroom. But listen, we've got to do what we've got to do to provide quality instruction for our children. So I agree that we need to exhaust all possibilities to find a certified teacher. But I also want to be honest and tell you that sometimes we find certified teachers that are not a good fit for the class, for our building, maybe for the grade level, or even the subject area that we're trying to feel. And in the state of Mississippi right now, it is difficult. It is, you know how they talk about it being the seller's world in the housing market? Mm -hmm. Well, let me tell you, it is the <laughs> teacher's world right now when it comes to this shortage. And so I do think that it's a viable um, process to help us get people from the business sector, even from the military sector, um, into the education profession. And we just have to hope that they have the passion to stay and maybe pursue, um, you know, advanced degrees to advance their skills. I mean, okay, don't answer this question if I get you in trouble, but I'm going to ask because you were talking about it being like a, a market for teachers. Do you find yourself calling up people after looking at a resume that maybe you wouldn't have called last year or the year before? I will say no, because I also want to say this. Um we are looking at all of our state and I'm sure across the country at um, our teacher assistants who are spending years in the classroom and maybe have 60 credit hours or are just shy mm -hmm. of getting their bachelor's degree. We are taking part in those teacher assistant programs that are working with those TAs to help them get the proper licensure. So that's one route. We are also looking at um, the folks who are applying for teaching jobs who are going alternate route. That requires them to take a few courses in the summer. But let me tell you about a new program that's in place. The Mississippi Teacher Residency Program is something new. Um, it has partnered with a number of universities as well as a number of districts in our state. Mm -hmm. And we are looking at individuals who have college degrees. Even some of them have master degrees and are deciding that they want to go into the teaching profession. So their transcripts are analyzed. Multiple steps are taken to see if they qualify for that program. And then when they do... We are interviewing them and seeing if they are a good fit. What we know is anytime you hire an alternate route teacher or even going through what, you know, our Mississippi teacher residency, they must have a strong mentor. They must be a part of a new teacher academy and they need to have strong professional development all year long and not just that first year. Zero to three teachers need strong support so that they can develop into master teachers. I'll, I'll say this, just looking at the numbers, this seems to be more and more of a trend. Um, for example, mm -hmm. Oklahoma grew um, their ECTs by 200% in a certain period. I'll, I'll put this and link it in the show notes. Um, the state approved uh, 2,673 emergency cert certificates for the 2021-22 wow. school year. Um, so, 
this is clearly like you said it's kind of a necessary evil i like to hear your optimism about it and and i agree with you like there's gonna be somebody who might be a professional and realize it wasn't the career for them whether that's biology or or whatever they they majored in and then want to hop into teachers and hop in to be a teacher and they could be a great one and this is kind of the gateway to do that kind of through the back door absolutely and so i guess i guess my other question for you though is do you see a lot of ects kind of resign in frustration um, after a few weeks on the job? I mean, do you get both sides of it? Let me tell you, that happens with properly, traditionally licensed teachers any different than it would happen with an alternate route teacher. It's going to be about classroom management. It's all about how they're set up for success. And it's all about how well they feel supported as to whether they can endure the trials of a beginning teacher life. And it it doesn't matter whether they were licensed or not. Um, And that's why I shared those things that are critical for the success of a novice teacher. Uh, this is good. I'm glad we had this discussion. I'm glad to hear your personal story because um, I, I, I feel like it emboldened what I was thinking um, mm-hmm. and uh, definitely something we're going to have to keep an eye on on whether or not it's a, you know, a Band-Aid fix or not. I would say it sounds Listen, like you're leaning, saying yes, it might, it might help I, a lot. I shock people all the time, especially alternate route teachers or provisionally licensed teachers that come in and they're in their interview and they're extremely nervous because they know that they can't truly speak about certain things because they don't have the experience. They will not have, you know, participated in student teaching, any of the practicum experience that comes with um, going through the traditional undergraduate program. But I calm many of them when I tell them I was an alternate route teacher. But let me tell you what I did to get my skill up to par. And I have to be honest, not everyone is cut out to be a teacher, even if they go through a traditional program and even if they are properly licensed, it's not for everyone. So when you're interviewing, whether they're licensed or not, you've got to find those people who are going to have a heart for children, who will fight for children, and who want to do the absolute best they can to ensure learning outcomes are happening. Do you have an undercover question when you're interviewing folks that kind of like helps you narrow in on whether or not somebody has a heart for children? I talk about scenarios. Have you had a difficult person or a difficult child that you've had to deal with in the past? Tell me how you handled that. I like to know about their teamwork ethic. Can they work with with difficult people? Can they be an asset to their team or their school? What strengths will they bring to the campus? Mm -hmm. Those are all important to me. Um, If they can't talk about collaborating and sharing and working with others and what they do is always about, you know, doing what's best for students, then it can make me a bit nervous because here's what I truly believe. You can be low skill and high will. I can provide you the skill. Right. I love it. But you can have all the skill in the world and have a sour attitude and a sour heart. That's toxic and not great for children. You know what question? This is going to seem silly after your great answer, but the, the question that I often ask folks um, if I'm trying to determine whether or not they're a team player is I say, um, do you return your grocery cart to the uh, little cart return place in the parking lot? <laughs> and usually if somebody's like, that's just, a good one. If somebody's like flat out like, no, I go, man, that's, I don't know if I could hire you because that means that you're going to leave it for somebody else to do it. And you're not. Well, that tells there. me you would hire me because I always return my cart. But for me, I always try to find out about it, you know, through a collaboration question. Even though you're a new teacher, what if you have differing views from your mentor or your team teachers? How will you share your idea or your strategy? How open are you to receiving feedback and implementing strategies from, you know, veteran teachers? Those are key questions for me. 
I love it. And they can't give you the dog and pony show because I give it to them in a scenario where they have to provide actual actions they would take. Yeah. Well, it's great advice, mm-hmm. Christina. I appreciate Thank the you. conversation. Are you ready for today's bright idea? I'm ready. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment has had his work reported on Good Morning America, Hardball with Chris Matthews, and National Geographic. Rick Warmly was also one of the first nationally board-certified teachers in the United States. Today, Rick is here to talk about how teachers can get their students energized on day one of the school year. Rick, thank you so much for being on Class Dismissed. Oh, it's a pleasure. Um, now, there, there's so much I want to talk to you about this, but what I really caught my eye about this article that you wrote about ways to get you know students ready to go and not kind of you know bring them down on day one was something that I used to hate or despise as a as a student, and that was when the teacher walks in the door and they just want to go over the rules and hand out forms and not really get to know you, and that's really what you wrote this article for, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I hate that, too, because that's setting up school as a place of control, not hope, not possibility, not creativity, not that I belong here. It's all about how do I, um, I don't know, how do I cowtail? How do I just follow along and become one more peg, you know, in the system? And they want to know that you're going to take them, help them transcend their current condition, help them aspire to something more than they are, and give them hope for a year that's really going to finally be interesting and there's going to be meaning behind it. And when all they get is more rules and regulations, they realize, yeah, one more year where there's nothing here for me. And I think setting that foundation fundamentally changes the teacher-student relationship for the rest of the year. And I think you kind of kick off the article that you wrote um, talking about how important it is to to get to know your students and, and how far that goes. And it reminded me of something, I want to say I read it in like Seven Habits for Highly Effective Leaders or something like that, but it talked about like an emotional bank. Is that is that essentially what you're saying? You're trying to build like this this emotional bank with your students so they, they believe in you from day one and they trust you? Well, that's interesting. You know, the degree to which anybody takes risk in any organization, including a a basic classroom microcosm, is to a large extent based on the degree to which they feel like they have trust and relationship with the one in charge. So I think this idea of emotional bank accounts where you make deposits in it so that when things get rough, you can draw from it and you have a wellspring from which to draw, they still trust you. They're okay because they know you've got their back. You will not humiliate them. One of the things that I found is that, you know, students realize that you will not humiliate them and that you will not let them humiliate themselves. They'll move mountains for you. So it's kind of like a mutual ethos. I'm looking out for you. You're looking out for me. So I may not like the activity you want me to do, but I respect you so much. I'm going to give it a try because I see that you're trying to bring my world and make it relevant and that I have a seat at learning's table, that I have a role to play in the actual learning. When that's not perceived, then it's real easy to remain passive, to make excuses, to almost to develop a learned helplessness. So I've got to build the trust. I've got this. You're in good hands. And there's this, this whole body of research about model reliability. If I can trust that you're a reliable model in my life, I will put up with more of the challenges you, you request of me than I would if you're an unreliable model. So sometimes I ask myself and other teachers, how do we prove that we're a reliable model? We remember supplies that we say we're going to remember to bring. If we say on Thursday we're going to do this, we do that thing on Thursday. If we say, hey, this is really going to be interesting, it turns out to be really interesting instead of just a put off or superficiality. So I think all those things 
come together to create a commitment that we're in this together. It's a collaboration to do this thing called school, not something we do to students, but something to do with them. And with that, the students feel like, okay, there's connection for me. I belong as a part of this this whole process. You offer a list of ideas of ways that maybe teachers should start off that first day of class. And, and it's so succinct and, and really just, you know, simple ideas that I think I had to share this with, with our listeners. So if you'll, you'll humor me, I want to kind of go over some of those and spread the word. Sure, but, yeah. But, but the, uh, the first one in there is the best way for you to learn, you said cards, like basically, I guess, put cards out. Help me understand that. Yeah, it's just like index cards or whatever, card stock or whatever you have. If you want to do it digitally, that's fine. But basically, kids are candid, and they know themselves pretty well already by the time they get to you know, third, fourth grade. It might be do a little differently than if you had younger kids. But we're talking about middle school, high school as well. And they'll say things like, well, I'll, I'll just say, hey, what's the best way for you to learn math? What's the best way for you to learn science? And they will say things like, look, if, you, if it's really important, write it on the board. Otherwise, I won't think it's important. Um, don't ask me to do it online, as I mentioned in the article, because this doesn't always work with my home life, because my brother or my sister always hog the computer when we only have one. They're, they're, I take those that stack of cards, and when I'm in the classroom, I'm on leave right now, but when I'm in the classroom, I have 185 students. So what does that mean? It means I got a stack that I rubber band, mm-hmm. and I look through that as I'm trying to decide what to do next, and kids will say some really cool things, give me lots of examples, um, you know, can I get a copy of these various things? Speak slowly. <laughs> it right. bothers me. Um, can I sit near the window? Um, there needs to be fresh air or I get really sleepy. <laughs> All that stuff is on there. And it's really very helpful. So when I'm worrying about a kid who's not thriving, I look through those cards to see if they said some, shared something with me that I need to hear. You also, this is a good one. You say, have the, the students write letters to the teacher, but as if they were their own parents. Oh, yeah, that's so liberating. When you write under pseudonym, you kind of are more free with the things that normally you would hold back. And the kids love it because it's the only time during the year they can write, you know, Dear Rick and act really grown up. But there's like one adult talking to another. And they say things about their lives. It, it, you know, there's one issue that sometimes they get so free, they, they share private things that parents would prefer they not share. So I do have to caution them on that. <laughs> right. But when I get what they say about themselves and then I get what they think their parents would say about themselves, I'm getting a really fleshed out version of the child. And when somebody's fully dimensionalized, you really care a heck of a lot more. It really activates all that, that teacher side of you. When you say, I really want to know this person, this complexity makes it much more interesting for me in the classroom. And again, like how much better is this than than just, you know, handing out forms and saying these are the rules of the class? Like if I was a student in a class that did that, I would be completely inspired and ready to come back the next day. Well, you would think you'd feel like the teacher cared enough to get to know me as a person instead of one more paper to grade. And a lot of students live in fear of that. I mean, I think every one of us wants to be connected. And another thing that you do, uh, Rick, you suggest that the teachers do um, interest surveys, kind of find out what the students are interested in, correct? Yes. But here's the problem, though. Some of them can be pretty stale. So, uh, yeah, there's a certain section where I want to get the basics, like do you have hobbies, favorite foods, sports, things like that. Maybe what do you what do you think of yourself doing for a career, that sort of thing. But I think there's benefit to doing some really, I don't know, just innovative ones, you know, a, a variety of things. Like I think one I mentioned in the article was about if you want to swap places with an animated 
Marvel, DC Comics, anime, manga, gaming character, who would it be and why? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, it's a little bit weird. It's a little bit different, but I think when people are kind of stretched in a place, that's a little bit different who they really are comes out. It's a bit more authentic. So if you can go back and give yourself advice from years ago, uh, what's something that surprises you describe something you, you daydream about or whatever it might be. What's something you wonder about how it works. There's an innocence there, a, a, a genuineness that can come out. And I think you have to find a variety of ways. The one caution I would give though, is that, Many times we're overly reliant on linguistic representation, so orally or in writing, and some kids just are better at drawing or expressing things in a non-linguistic way. So if there is any possibility as you do a survey that they could actually have alternative ways of expressing it, I think you would serve yourself well and you might actually see a different side of the student otherwise unseen. In this last one, I want to hit on, and you have several, and I'll link to the article in our show notes, but um, this one, because I'd never heard of it, Six Word Memoirs. Uh, I love six word memoirs. And the coolest thing about it is that kids just, they, they say profound things and the rest of the class goes, what the, who are you? What have you done with our friend? I mean, they just astonish themselves. They surprise themselves. And it's not five words, it's not seven, it has to be six. So every single word counts. Every single word advances your cause. And this is a whole meme, man. There is a whole set of websites and books like there are whole books just in romantic six-word memoirs. There are whole websites dedicated to growing up six-word memoirs. But the basic idea is that way back long ago, the urban legend is that Ernest Hemingway was told to write the most poignant story he could in the shortest amount of words, and he wrote for sale, baby shoes, never worn. And that's it's a gut punch for a lot of people. You can do funny ones. And I think I put some of those in there, like my entourage asleep in his crib, uh, books, music, that's all I need, you know, things like that. But what's really cool is they do it about themselves. You get to know the kids. So in the, in the six-word memoirs, we can use that as students actually review and look at content. And when you do a six-word memoir and then you explain behind the scenes, you know, what were you thinking? You use that word versus that word and th- that profound nature of it it really reveals a lot more about what the student's thinking. So I see misconceptions that otherwise go unseen. The students get very excited about it. They feel empowered. I often get students who, after the class is over, will send me six-word memoirs of what happened in, in the sports practice that day or what they think about this movie, Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 2. What's your six-word memoir? And they really have a good time with it. They want to. They ask to do it throughout the year. So it's always a really good practice, but truly – there's a whole website and a book dedicated to it. I direct everybody to take a look at that to get inspired. Well, these ideas are absolutely incredible. And and like I said earlier, I mean, as a student, I would love to see my teachers, you know, you're bringing some of this to the classroom on day one. I think it just really kind of sets the tone and changes it. Um, I do want to talk about some other things. And that just has to do with you as a, as a whole. I know you, you travel the country. What's your message right now? What's your main talking point as you kind of go from school to school? Man, that's a really good question. I think there's a, a lot of room for hope. A lot of people are very, very disgruntled, very frustrated, losing morale in teaching. We have such a drought of teachers, so many places where they're having to double up. As teachers taking more and more students because nobody wants to go into the profession. We have schools of teacher ed that aren't getting enough candidates to fill all the slots available. And it's not paying very well, obviously, and it's a little bit demoralizing in that society tends to put all of its ills 
and concerns on the shoulders of teachers. And so students are coming for more and more dysfunctional communities or lives. There's a divisive politics. There's a toxic nature. We're doing the drills for you know, uh, uh, shooter drills, practice drills. We've got worry about ice raids in some places and students are just crying and teachers are like, hey, how do I navigate that and say, oh, it's really important to learn where to put a comma and a divided quote. Some things are just paling in importance. And then we have the bigger, the big issues of what do we choose to teach? You know, particularly history and social studies. Well, if we teach that narrative, that's seen through that lens, that filter, and that's not responsive or respectful of the filter of this other uh, group of people over here. So the idea of how do we become more sensitive and a lot of teachers, you know, they've been identified with certain ways of teaching and certain things that they teach for years. And now you're asking them to drop that. There's a grieving process. That's a really big struggle. I also find that there's a a real struggle to get teachers to be developmentally appropriate. Like if I were to say, what's developmentally appropriate for a third grader or a middle schooler or a high schooler, they kind of stare blankly at me. So there's been an explosion of cognitive science research of late. What we really know about brains learn and and think and remember, long-term memory, uh, uh, retrieval practice has been exciting, a new field. And I think before I can teach you about standards-based grading, differentiated instruction, reading in the content areas, technology integrations, whatever they are, social-emotional learning, I do need to have you develop a sense of expertise about the brain. And a lot of teachers just aren't there yet, but some schools of teacher ed are not providing that as well. So it's kind of a a mixed bag. We need pre-service and in-service on that. And I think if you were equipped, fortified, with a real serious knowledge of versatility with what you know about the human mind and skill development and memory development and, and maturation, you'd be more likely to dive into some of the more effective innovative practices of, of a modern pedagogical approach. But there are a lot of people, they know their subject or they know what they've been doing for 20 years and they're not willing to go through the, mm-hmm. it's really heavy lifting uh, of the change process. So I do talk a lot about that. And I think the idea of racism and microaggressions and implicit bias has become paramount. And some people have just grown a little bit complacent. Along that same line, I think the intellect and creativity atrophy after been teaching the same thing year after year after year. And we don't pay enough attention to the intellectual wellness of teachers, the intellectual life of teachers, and how to cultivate that just to kind of feed their personal soul, but to create a sense of empathy for the child who's learning something brand new, let alone the excitement on our own of learning something about which we've always always been passionate. And I think if the server's down, a child is driving us nuts, we can't get the resources you know, for another five weeks, and now our lesson plan is out the window. When those problems arise, if you don't pay attention to cultivate and nourish your intellect and creativity, you don't see yourself as a problem solver. You see one way to teach it. If that one way is taken away, there's nothing you can do. Your hands are tied. And you almost develop what students do, a learned helplessness. And I think that we need to own this stuff. We don't wait for a school to do our own professional development. We're in charge of our own professional development. And a big part of that is to cultivating, how do I problem solve when things are quite challenging? So I think a, a mixture of all those would be what I'm really emphasizing if, if you want that. Sorry, it's such a no, no. convoluted answer. 
No, I, I love your energy. It's it's contagious. Um, and and I just got to ask, like, so if somebody wants to to catch up with you to, to have a chat with you or, or try to even book you, like, how do they go about doing that? Should they talk to you on Twitter or reach out to you through a website? Hey, my website is very easy to remember. It's just my name and .com. So rickwormley.com. And there are at least four or five ways on there where you can send me a quick email and say, let's talk further about this. But I am on Twitter and I love talking on Twitter. I'm part of Twitter communities and chats and so on. So if you want to go to at Rick Wormley 2, there is at Rick Wormley, but it was hacked about five years ago. Oh, so no. I switched over to two. Yeah. Either one of those, the website, rickwormley.com or the Rick Wormley 2, great ways to get a hold of me. All right. Excellent. Rick, again, we appreciate you coming on the show. Are you ready for our pop quiz? Oh, man. Hit me with it. All right. Uh, you've, you've been around the block with education, so I'm looking forward to your answers here. All right. So first question, if students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Reading. Reading opens more doors and slams more doors. I guarantee it's the most important subject taught in high school, middle school, elementary. And great scientists and great historians and great mathematicians can read their disciplines, not just present some case studies in numeric computation or whatever it is. It's the reading of it that opens those doors and just allows you to achieve all your dreams, followed very closely by science. I think it's to our peril. We have science illiterate people, so we need to make science literacy paramount as well. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? I like the the social emotional learning stuff, but not to the exclusion of other things. I think some people, and this is not going to make me very popular with some educators, I think some people are saying, hey, you can always look it up. Content knowledge isn't nearly as important. Explicit instruction isn't nearly important. And I think it is. I think when you read something, you have to have a stored knowledge base to connect to what you are reading. Otherwise, you will not remember it. It will not be perspective. You will not recognize patterns. You'll not develop the meaning making that needs to be there. Memorizing facts, large swaths of literature, uh, 50 pronouns, transition words, formulas. The act of memorizing is not overtly taught to do it. It's not just about the skills. It is literally about the content itself. What does every child deserve? A loving, compassionate, ceaseless advocate. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? There's so many. Yeah, I know. I know you did kind of touch on this when I asked you what, what you're speaking about. So I, I guess yeah, you I kind think, of answered it. I think politics that gets in the way of effective instruction is the biggest challenge. And then lack of resources and support um, would be a, a very close tie or, or second place. What's the best gift to give an educator? Time. Uh, just the time to do it. I, I get, Give me two hours of planning time or time to work with kids rather than, you know, I may or may not get a planning period because there's so many subs we have to cover each other's classes. I think the time to do that, more time, no more work days where I could get together and we can collaborate. It'd be awesome. I'm not all, I'm not totally against uh, coupons for a favorite coffee local establishment. <laughs> it would be very helpful. Right. I, I think, um, the great is just to support you in your own journey, your own development as well, whatever way you can make that happen. Which teacher changed your life? There were several. I'll say Mr. Caputo in sixth grade, Mrs. Culpepper in fourth grade. Uh, oh, I, I, Mrs. Newsom in seventh grade. I would walk in and say, can we please do something creative today? And she would say, I got it just for you. This is the Rick Warmly part of the lesson. And that really helped me feel like maybe I could be a part of this. I think all those teachers were articulate, enthusiastic ambassadors for the teaching profession. 
and they reveal behind the scenes thinking, you know, what it was like to be a teacher. And I just, it, it helped me create a vision of myself and maybe eventually seeing myself doing that. And I've tried to do that with, as I teach science, I bring scientists in the classroom. As I teach math, I bring mathematicians in the classroom, engineers in the classroom, so they can see a person of, a personifying, I guess, of somebody really doing it instead of just reading about it abstractly in some book. And last question, pen or pencil? I, I think, and I, I, I stream my consciousness, so to speak, really fast. So I need the smoothness of a pen, but I scratch out right and left. <laughs> but the pen helps me keep up with the words in my head. A pencil is just slower moving, but I like the idea that I can erase it. I'm going to have to say a pen just for the fluency of it, but pencil maybe for the functionality. I have to give you credit. That was the most thought out pen or pencil answer we've ever had on the show. <laughs> <You> really- <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I'm always glad to be, you know, a trendsetter. Right. right. Again, uh, you can catch up with Rick Warmly over at wickwarmly.com or, or find him over on Twitter. Rick, we really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Thank you for your curiosity and for the program. I, I love this podcast. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismiss. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. <laughs>